When facing a family law matter, it can feel like an overwhelming and never-ending court process. It's vital to know that things will look better on the other side if you hire legal counsel with the skill and compassion to help. It's Stangy Law Firm. We represent clients in difficult family law matters every day. Visit FamilyLawRepresentation.com to schedule your consultation. That's FamilyLawRepresentation.com. Stangy Law Firm, here to help you rebuild your life. Stangy Law Firm has an office in Wichita. Kirk Stangy, 120 South Central Avenue, Suite 450 Clayton, Missouri. You're listening to a Roddenberry Podcast. This episode of Mission Log is sponsored by Raycon. Take 15% off your entire order at buyraycon.com slash missionlog. That's it. Feel free to grab a pair and a spare. 15% off at buyraycon.com slash missionlog. This episode is also brought to you by upstart.com. Find out how Upstart can lower your monthly payments today when you go to upstart.com slash missionlog. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 401, Change of Heart. Welcome into another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm Norman Lau. And I'm John Champion. Each week on Mission Log, it is our duty and honor to watch every episode of Star Trek and try to discover the morals, meanings, and messages therein. This week, Change of Heart, the one where Worf uses the words duty, honor, loyalty as the backbone of a life spent defending the Federation. Uh, Also, uh, adjectives that describe the sanctity of marriage. Yeah, but we're talking about duty here. I know. What? Uh, 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 Look, Norm, not in front of the listeners. Can you please just do the thing, and we'll talk about this later. Fine. Fine. Mission Log is a conversation about Star Trek, and that's why we want to hear from you. Use Mission Log Pod to give us a like and a share on Facebook and Twitter. Then follow us and rate us at Apple Podcasts to help others find the show. You can call us on Skype at Mission Log Pod or by dialing 323-522-5641. Send us an email at missionlog at roddenberry.com. And remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. Okay, I'm fine now. So... Fine. We're all fine now, so John, please regale our listeners with this week's trivia. Do we need to have a talk after the show? I'm fine. Do we did not? not okay, I'm fine. Yeah, yeah. You sure? I'm okay, fine. fine, fine. You sound fine. Okay. <laughs> trivia for today's show: Change of Heart. Well, the episode was written by Ronald D. Moore, and really, this was Ron's story to explore the characters, give some depth to the Dax and Worf relationship that may have been overlooked in the heavy war story arc at the end of last season and the first part of this one. A few things he noted were wrapping up the more humorous uh, B story early so that it it didn't compete with the dramatic arc of the A plot. Also, he, he actually had a whole other B plot originally that would have introduced us to Rom's first wife, Nog's mother, but tonally it just didn't fit. It was directed by David Livingston, longtime producer and director of Star Trek, and David most recently directed You Are Cordially Invited in our coverage, and then he has one more DS9 episode before we catch up with him on his longest Trek directorial run on Voyager. Hey, we have a new runabout, the Shenandoah, and uh, in the naming scheme, well, okay, look, it's not precisely a river, but a tributary of the Potomac. Maybe in the 24th century, it's bigger or it's changed course a little bit, but the Shenandoah, it is. And uh, we do get a mention of the USS Sutherland in this episode. Remember who serves on the Sutherland? One uh, Lieutenant Atoa with his fire dancing skills. And I always like to point out filming locations. Uh, Surprisingly, there are no locations in this episode for a story that takes place outside in a jungle as much as it does. Um, They did it all in studio. 
partly because they had spent so much budget in episodes leading up to this and needed to tone it down a little bit. But that brought along its own set of problems. And uh, again, Terry's book, Terry J. Erdman's uh, Deep Space Nine Companion, is invaluable here. He describes it by saying that they thought they were being very clever, uh, the production staff, by building the set as essentially like a donut. So you have this circular stage, and you can put the camera pretty much anywhere you want because they had put all the foliage on platforms. So you could move around trees and plants, and then you don't have to do complicated setups because you're not shooting into a box, basically. You have this space that the actors can just keep walking, and you keep repositioning the camera. Well, good on paper, not so good in practice. The set department had absolutely filled that round stage with plants and vines and trees so much so that they couldn't move those pieces around when they needed to so they didn't get to do the fancy uh continual shooting like they actually wanted to but they they certainly made the best of it now let's talk about guest stars well guest star we only have one and at that we only see him on a monitor that would be todd waring as the cardassian defector lasarin we've seen todd with considerably less makeup on when he was de curtis a crewman in the season two ds9 episode whispers while this is the last of his trek appearances he shows up in guest and recurring roles all over the place NYPD Blue, Monk, and Chasing Life, to name a few. But look, if you want another Star Trek connection, uh, one of his first acting roles was on the short-lived Lucy Arnaz show, starring, of course, the daughter of Desi Arnaz and Lucille Ball, the creators of Desilu Studios. Worf and Dax are the couple that does everything together, including gathering intel on the Dominion. Let's see how that works out for them. Prologue From atop the second-story balcony in Quark's bar, Chief O'Brien and Worf are watching a very intense tango game between Dax, Quark, and several other well-heeled Ferengi. Oh, and by watching, meaning not completely understanding any of it, as O'Brien and Worf both admit. However, what the Chief does know is that Quark is on a 206-game winning streak. But Worf, confident in Dax's tango skills, places, and just as quickly loses, a wager to Chief O'Brien for the price of a bottle of scotch, a highland, and a single malt, naturally. Quark's 207th win notwithstanding, Worf descends to the Tongo parlor to cheer up his parmakai and tells Dax that he would rather lose betting on his wife than win betting on someone else. Smooth line, Worf. Like very young and very sweet bloodline. After a brief respite in their quarters, replete with their own bedtime rituals of Dax brushing her hair and Worf praying at his altar, the two enjoy an evening alone in a somewhat blissless night's sleep as Major Kira wakes them unexpectedly to report for an urgent assignment. Upon arriving in Captain Sisko's office, Kira informs them that they are to take the runabout Shenandoah to meet with Lacerin, a Cardassian agent whose Starfleet intelligence believes is an asset important enough to risk a face-to-face meeting in the Badlands. Act 1 There's nothing quite like planning a honeymoon to pass the time, as newlyweds Dax and Worf speed their way towards the Badlands and their rendezvous with Lucerne. And as much as they both do want to go on a honeymoon, Worf wants one that involves painstaking excursions to the Vulcan Forge or life-threatening mountain climbings on Endor. Dax wants a vacation free of pain and full of pampering, but Worf puts his foot down as he must needs do and agrees... Dax is both relieved and suspicious about Worf's more recent accommodating and humorous behavior, to which Worf responds that he understands that as a married man, he must make certain adjustments to his lifestyle, adjustments that Dax has trouble accepting. Does not. Does too. Does not. This is going to be a long trip. Meanwhile, on Deep Space Nine, Dr. Bashir, I presume, enters the Chief's quarters, dressed to kill, Spies on the holodeck, that is. 
as he tries to pull Miles away from what appears to be a self-taught tango lesson. And why? Julian asks. Because as Miles points out, someone has to beat Quark, and he needs Julian's help to do it. After all, it takes two to tango. Back on the runabout, Worf and Dax finally arrive at the coordinates in the Badlands and immediately receive a transmission from Lacerin. He's a very touchy Cardassian agent who isn't one to suffer minced words and gets straight to the point. He wants out now, and warps right past asking for assistance to demanding when and where he is to be extracted. He claims to have information on the numbers and whereabouts of the founders in the Alpha Quadrant, and this kind of information has the potential to change the course of the war. Their new mission, should they choose to accept it, is to reach Dominion space on Sokara, avoid being detected by a variety of sensor nets, and land the runabout in the jungles near the Sakaran base, extract Lacerin, and deliver him safely to Federation authorities. End of line. Act 2. Back at the Chief's makeshift Tongo parlor, it seems that even with Julian's help, he's just not getting even the basics of the game, let alone the wherewithal to take down Quark. But why? Julian asks again. Well, first, as the chief explains, it's a distraction because Keiko's been away for six months. But mostly, though, because it's a challenge. Like engineering is a challenge. Like trying to master kayaking is a challenge. And playing darts against his genetically engineered best friend who has lightning fast eye hand coordination and the mental reflexes capable of calculating the odds and probabilities to play Tongo at a master's level in a fraction of the time it would take any normal human to learn let alone beat the unseemingly unbeatable quark kind of challenge. Back on the Shenandoah, Dax and Worf engage an asteroid field, and before Worf tried to tell Dax about the odds of successfully navigating it, she was already evading the planet's sensors and looking for a landing zone. Setting down on a stretch of land far enough from the ground sensors, the distance must be traversed in two days. With survival gear in tow and phaser rifles at the ready, Worf and Dax disembark onto the surface of Sukara and set out to find Lasaran. Act 3. After teching the tech and masking their life signs from the variety of sensor arrays on the planet, the happy couple head off into more of Worf's idea of a honeymoon, complete with authentically deadly Jem'Hadar patrols, perhaps even deadlier indigenous lifeforms, flora and fauna, and since they can't use their tricorders as they are busy masking their life signs, it's back to good old-fashioned your directional guess is as good as mine. Back in Quark's, the Chief and Julian approach Quark's private tongo table with serious intent in their eyes and even more serious gold-pressed latinum secured in an even more serious steel attaché case, complete with custom foam inserts. The Ferengi players invite Bashir to the table, and he makes very short work of them, all but one. Bashir and Quark are ready to tango at tongo, but in all dances, someone leads, and someone follows, and Quark leads Bashir more specifically his feelings towards Jadzia, how he may have let his opportunities slip through his fingers and into wharfs. Around and around goes the dance until Julian's no longer focused on the game. But when Quark confronts, Julian proudly shows his nearly unbeatable full consortium, which would have ended the evening if it wasn't for Quark trumping Julian with a total monopoly. The lesson learned, nothing is fair in love and tango. Meanwhile, on Sakara, as evening approaches, Dax and Worf set camp. While listening to and remarking how the indigenous lifeforms are enjoying their evening, Worf lowers his guard, relaxes, and reminisces about how this reminds him of trips he used to take to the Ural Mountains with his adopted father and brother Nikolai. Suddenly, Worf senses something amiss, and he and Dax take cover. Three Jem'Hadar emerge from the forest right on top of them, Worf and Dax managed to kill all three, but not before one of them hit Dax with a glancing shot, which could be healed if not for the anticoagulant effect of the Jem'Hadar energy weapons. Time is ticking faster now, as Dax is in danger of bleeding to death. Act 4 The longer Worf and Dax try to navigate the jungle to find Lasaran's rendezvous point, the faster Dax's condition deteriorates as she is losing more blood than Worf could administer plasma and pain suppressants. With her blood pressure dropping rapidly and her physical stability following suit, Jadzia bears down, grits her teeth, and forges ahead to complete the mission until she can't. No matter her best effort, no matter how strong her warrior's heart or determination as a Starfleet officer, 
Dax is just too weak to continue, can barely keep her balance upright, let alone walking, and her injury is just too severe. Four blood-soaked bandages changed within two hours is proof enough that Jadzia is at severe risk of not making it back alive, and ever making light of even the most dire of situations, or at least to make her husband smile, Worf promises Dax that he will smile for her as long as as often as she'd like, once the mission is over. Act 5. Dax's situation is dire and needs proper and immediate surgical attention. Torn between continuing the mission and staying with the woman he loves, the woman he calls his wife, Worf makes the difficult decision to leave her behind and with enough hyposprays and provisions to survive as long as possible. Duty is what drives Worf away from Dax as they both accept that finding Lasaran and completing the mission takes top priority, as is their sworn duty as Starfleet officers to uphold. As Worf heads furiously towards the rendezvous, he is overwhelmed by hearing the beating of his own heart. He races back to Jedzia, finds her unconscious, and carries her back to the runabout. Back on Deep Space Nine, Dax receives the medical attention that she needs and will be fine. However, Worf's actions led to Lasaran's death and the total failure of his mission, and Captain Sisko is beside himself and demands to know why. Why would Worf jeopardize not only his career, but his duty as a Starfleet officer who has been entrusted with safeguarding those who he had sworn to defend and protect? Furthermore, Sisko also informs Worf that because of the sensitive nature of the mission, Worf would not be court-martialed, and that now he would most likely be never offered a starship command of his own. Finally, he and Dax are never to be assigned to the same mission so as long as they serve on Deep Space Nine. But in a moment of honesty, Sisko confesses to Worf as a husband once, if it were his Jennifer that was in Dax's situation, he would have done the same thing. As Dax wakes in the infirmary, she finds Worf waiting by her side. He tells her that not only did he fail the mission, but that there were consequences. Dax is sorry that Worf's career has been tarnished, but he simply, calming, and lovingly looks deep into his wife's eyes and says, You come first, before career, before duty, before anything. I do not regret what I did, and I would do it again. The End Norman, as always, I'm so glad when uh, your very own Worf makes an appearance in the show. This one sounded totally <laughs> appropriate, nicely done, greatly appreciated. Mm-hmm. Um, something, you know, right off the bat, it's a, usually a grab bag. It's a hit or miss thing with the teasers that open up an episode of Star Trek. Particularly, I feel like in 90s Star Trek, that can either be super long, super short, super intriguing or super disposable like there's not there's not a whole lot of them that just feel paced exactly right and intriguing just enough that you feel like ooh, now i'm really into this episode this Mm -hmm. one was strange i feel like it had a great start but a really weird ending because the ending of the teaser is just now you're going to go on a mission okay (laughs) <laughs> the ship pulls away from Deep Space Nine. <laughs> but the first right. two-thirds of this teaser are great. Maybe even three-quarters of the teaser are great. Uh, first of all, Tongo as a game for an outsider like ourselves just looks like total chaos. It's people spinning the wheel constantly, yelling things out, calling out numbers. Well, John, that's what it means. That's what Tongo translates to. It translates to total chaos. Total chaos, Right. Right. So it's (laughs) it's great because it it, it feels very real in universe. And it feels like if you just walked, uh, you know, walked up to a a really active table at a Vegas casino and you had no idea what was going on. You know, like like Mm -hmm. craps is a game like that for me. I really have no idea what's going on. But then I watch it and people are getting excited about things I just don't understand. You know, so I love that. And I love, of course, the back and forth about the blood wine and the scotch. (laughs) <laughs> you know, Worf <laughs> saying specifically he likes his young and very sweet. <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. So nice, nice moments in there. But, but mm. I feel like we got some questions about that scotch. So, yeah. Because I know I'm, you. I'm a, yeah. Yeah. So I'm a little, I'm a little surprised that, that uh, an Irishman like O'Brien, who has made every... You know, every instance known when he can that he is Irish, mm-hmm. you know, he goes back to his Irish heritage, that he would be a fan. I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with an Irishman being a fan of Scotch whiskey, 
but there are so many great, there are so many great Irish pot still whiskey that they're, they're famous for. Yeah. Right. So you have, you know, you have red breast, you have yellow spot, you have, you know, premium Jameson, you have all of these great Irish whiskeys. It would yeah. be, I thought it would have been neat if you said, you know, preferably Irish, preferably pot still, preferably single malt. Yeah. That would have been perfect, O'Brien. Right. Just, right. I'm just saying. Yeah. Just no, saying. I, I agree with you. Unless something horrible happens between now and the 24th century. That's. Now it's hope. Yeah, 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 I know. Um, some other nice little details uh, toward the top of the show here. Uh, Worf's little Kalis shrine with the candles that that's just now is that Kalis? i thought it was it? i i thought it was too yeah now question is is it the real Kalis or is it the fake genetically created Kalis? because to the klingons <laughs> they just don't care they just don't care you know i know that because Worf said something i guess in in the in the marriage ceremony where like you know we killed all our gods off yeah. and then Kalis. i mean like so they don't have gods to pray to it has to be Kalis. I, I would think so. I mean, and it's so weird, like, if we wanted to dive really deep into Klingon uh, spiritual or religious beliefs, like, it, it's a fascinating thing that in their wedding vows, they talk about killing the gods, and yet mm-hmm. they all say by Kales that, that they're going to do this thing. And I wonder if it's, you could almost make the argument that it's like somebody now who is a non-believer Somebody sneezes and reactionary, you say, God bless you, or, or whatever. Mm. You, you know, so the, it might be yeah. these things that are kind of cultural holdovers, and it could just be like a ritual thing that may not have the same meaning that it did millennia ago. But um, mm-hmm. I assumed it was Kalas. I thought it was interesting. And remember, you know, Worf is the most Klingon of all the Klingons. So if there's all a right. ritual— He's going to do it. I um, mm-hmm. also liked his pajamas, which looked like something from a Ren Fair, so perfectly appropriate there. I uh, love their wedding picture on the stand. Speaking of Ren Fair. Yes, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and also speaking of Ren Fair or like a 70s ski lodge, that fur blanket. Yes, that's what I'm mm-hmm. talking about. Love it. Love it. That was very Bond-like. Totally. What did. That's exactly right? what I thought. <laughs> yeah, and uh, nice attention to detail. I don't want to get too sexy or sexist about this detail, but it is nice to see that the trill spots go all the way down the legs to their ankles, yes, it, right down their feet. They look great. That that's mm-hmm. awesome. Yeah, and I look Dax. Look, if I didn't love Dax before, which I did, I would definitely love her now because what she wants in her honeymoon is room service and no suffering. I am Team Dax, always been Team Dax, and that just clenches it right there. You know, <laughs> my my idea of roughing it is no room service, and and that whole bit that that setup. You know, yes, Worf is set in his ways, and he says he doesn't have to sleep on his same side of the bed or brush his hair just so. I think that's all a lie. I bet if he doesn't get the side of the bed that he wants, then it's just going to ruin his night. And I bet if his ponytail isn't just so, then you get a lecture about honor and the honor of the ponytail. <laughs> That's... I wonder what his sleep number is. <laughs> right? Also, right. I, I wonder if he needs, like, you know, a, a special mattress. He might. He... Or if he sleeps cool. Yeah. Know, and she sleeps hot. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I bet he moves. No, I bet he doesn't move around a lot. I bet she does. Look, they're going to need to go to helixsleep.com slash mission log. That's all there is to it. Actually, you yeah. know, um, and, and the details very well done. In the details, though, like, uh, I guess the trills don't like the heat. Uh, the Klingons don't like the cold. So yeah. that would be, he would he would need some type of um, heating pad on his side of the Love bed. Love that bit. I guess, yeah. in yeah. the morning. Um, so here we are with a Star Trek trope-ish episode doing the Star Trek trope at the very beginning because in the quadrant where they are at war the most, there's only one, and not even a starship, just one Volkswagen bug (laughs) with engines to do a mission. You're the only ship around. You're the only ship. That's right. You're the only ship around. And you're not even really a ship. You're a Danube-class runabout with spirit. Right. You can do it. Oh, (laughs) I know. That's some that's some hard shade throwing uh, at that, but it it happens all the time. It does. It, it does. Oh, yeah. by the way, you, you're the only two Starfleet officers that can pilot the only Starfleet ship that we have on this day. I know. And look, I don't want to jump ahead too much, but it's like the, this whole uh, idea about not putting the married couple or or people you know on the same mission, and they're the only people on the mission. Yes, there are plenty of other people who could have gone on that mission too. 
but mm-hmm. we'll 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 get to that probably. Like two guys playing tango. Uh, yeah, right. Hello. Yeah. Uh, and speaking of those guys <laughs> playing tango, we were this close to getting another adventure of Bashir Julian Bashir in the Hollow Suite. I'm so. Ish. Bummed that we didn't get it. Uh, I'm, look, I'm glad they teased it, and it was a funny lead-in to O'Brien's obsession with learning Tongo uh, just to beat Quark and win his bet. But oh, so I, I wanted more in that world of our man Bashir. See, one of these days, I, I don't know if this is going to happen in Deep Space Nine. I really don't, and please don't spoil it for me if it does. But I want Bashir, Julian Bashir, to play Tongo against, say, like. Dr. Quark. Yes. Right. Yes, or yes. something like that. Or Quark with an eye patch yeah. or some type of schmirsch Quark. You know, just for the holodeck feel of it. You know, Quark surrounded by like gorgeous women uh-huh. giving him umlocks, you know, and Bashir is sitting there all cool with his white smoking jacket on. Yes. You know what I'm saying? Yes. But, but isn't it against some kind of rule that Julian made for himself that he shouldn't engage in these types of public displays of using his genetic? abilities because yeah i mean like i i wonder you know he he forces himself well well he he honors o'brien's request to stand a few feet behind when they play darts Mm -hmm. so he does that but i also think that quark wouldn't mind the challenge which clearly he doesn't because he does engage in the game I, i think quark and most ferengi are so confident about their tongo skills they wouldn't care. They're like, oh, you're going to use your genetic abilities against us? Ha, 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 ha. Go ahead, human, you know? And that'll be just doubly doubly worse, I guess, if you lose. Yeah, right. Because you have all this ability and you still lost. Right, right. right? Yeah. yeah. And I, I like that the way that plot line played out. So um, mm-hmm. uh, we, we will also talk about that. Man, uh, Lazarin really, really leaning into the camera when he has his conversation with Dax and Worf in the shuttle. Yeah, yes. To me, it was really funny because we, we've sort of, we've already suspended disbelief a few times and, and we've also asked ourselves exactly how dimensional are those 24th century communications? Extreme close-up! Right, right! He does the extreme close <laughs> And he literally, he, he's looking in one direction to look at Worf. He's looking in the other direction to look at Dax and then he just absolutely like leans forward and into the camera like into right. the space of the shuttle yeah like i dropped my contact down there <laughs> yeah, right. like, what's going i can't find it yes yes <laughs> oh and man you mentioned it in the recap chief o'brien <laughs> says uh, i have to do something to keep my mind off the fact that keiko's been away for the past six months really chief do you though do you mm. do you yeah okay all right Fun asteroid sequence. Uh, this is not an effects-heavy show, so it's nice to have that little bit in there, and they get a little interplay, the, the Dax and Worf bit. It, it's just, that was a very un-Star Trek-y thing to see, and it, at least up until this point. But now we got CG. Mm-hmm. Now we have a virtual camera in space to follow them. Uh, it was very cool. Never tell Dax the odds. No. <laughs> That's all I got to say. Yeah. Oh, by the way, you just reminded me that we have to put learning how to play Tongo because Keiko was gone for six months on, on the, the wheel, wheel of, of excuses. Oh, um, remember, the Klingon Mechleth never leave home without it. It slices, it dices, it clears foliage, just embedded in a tree, and marks your place if you ever get lost in the jungle, and perfect for serving skewer Jem Hadar. But wait, there's more. <laughs> nice. Very nice. Nice. Oh, and, and never also never tell Quark the odds because... Hokey genetic engineering and enhanced intelligence is no match for a good diversion at your side, kid. That. Cork solo to Julian Skywalker. <laughs> That's good. That's very mm-hmm. solid. Hey, you mentioned earlier how good the makeup job is on Terry uh, as Dax, uh, just seeing like the spots go all the way down. And they, they made it sexy at the top. But mm-hmm. man, I, I'm glad they did that because it is a very different Dax that we get toward the end as she is getting weaker and weaker, just yeah. incredible. Like, great makeup, great performance. And, you know, in a show like this, every now and then, uh, the the annoying jokes, the forced joking, which I know is part of the point, that the, she's doing the forced joke 
in each scene. But when you cut back to those shots of her just with the life drained out of her, it keeps you grounded in the reality of the situation. And mm -hmm. it, just seeing her look like that, that was one of those grounding kind of markers for me. You know, I love small details, like technical details, like the portable-sized heating unit that they used in their base camp. Yeah. Because, of course, they don't want to light a fire, or that would be a signal fire for everybody on the planet, especially the Jem'Hadar, or also smoke, yeah. because smoke would provide some type of signal to the Jem'Hadar. So I just thought that was neat, that they actually thought about that. They had a piece of tech that would help them through that particular cold night, aside from the obvious, the aluminum foil blanket. <laughs> um, That's the space blanket, but, uh, Norm. Space oh, space blanket. blanket. Yep. I mm -hmm. forgot. Yep. And uh, you had one job. You had one job, Julian. And that was to find an antidote against the anticoagulant Jem'Hadar weapons all the way back Thank you. to the ship. That was like two seasons Thank ago. Thank you. Right? Yeah. And I, I thought that just because that Munez died from it horribly and that they were going to fight Jem'Hadar throughout the course of this war, that they would probably want to create some kind of countermeasure against this if ever it happened again. To say, Dax, <laughs> cut, cut to Benjamin Cisco in the infirmary. Uh, hey, Julian, how's that anticoagulant coming along? Uh, remember Munez? Uh, cut to Bashir. Who? In the jungle, the mighty jungle. It's a good thing Dax didn't go to sleep that one last time. Hey, we'll get back to our change of heart in just a moment. But first, a word from this week's sponsors. Hey, Norman, we've talked about it before. You know, uh, what we do while we're at home, maybe uh, trying to get out for a walk, maybe doing some chores and wanting something to listen to while we're doing it. Well, summer right around the corner and a little bit of travel. I I've actually started to book a little bit of travel. And I can tell you that for hmm. sure, one of the things coming with me is my Raycon earbuds, uh, because if I've got a long trip on a train or I get to a place and I just want to have a walk, get out, get some fresh air, I am going to be listening to podcasts, I'm going to be listening to music, catching up on news. So look, whether it's for work or for play, so many of us are going to be on the move again this summer. Take your Raycons with you. You know, one thing, John, that I've really noticed that people are, since they have so many new things that they have to carry with them, masks, hand sanitizer, things of that nature, everyday carry or EDC, as the kids call it nowadays, is very important. So having something compact and reliable is the way to go. And that's Raycon. Yeah. So, you know, if you're like me and whether you're listening to, oh, I don't know, some Star Trek podcasts or maybe some cool 60s lounge jazz like I want to do, a pair of Raycon wireless earbuds in your ears can make all the difference. Ooh, jazz. You know what? You know why these are good for jazz? Because they have that really high fidelity quality. You get crisp highs and powerful beats at half the price of other premium audio brands. And they look good. And remember, it's important to look good as it, as is, it is to, to feel, feel good. good yeah. right? As it is yeah. to feel good. And you look marvelous in those, and you know who you are. <laughs> Raycons look great. They feel great in your ears, and they come in a range of really cool colors with customizable gel tips for that in-ear comfortable fit, because that's also really important. Yeah, man. I, look, I'll share some of my playlists with you. If I have that cool, loungy jazz soundtrack everywhere I go, it just makes my day right. And wherever I go, Raycons are built to go wherever you go with quick seamless Bluetooth pairing, and a compact charging case. So listen up. Raycon is offering 15% off their products for our listeners, and here's what you've got to do to get it. Go to buyraycon.com slash mission log. There you'll get 15% off your entire Raycon order, and it's such a good deal, you'll want to grab a pair and a spare. That's 15% off at buyraycon.com slash mission log buyraycon.com slash mission log. Hey, I don't know about you, but um, I can definitely speak for myself and from personal experience that uh, paying off debt can feel like an absolute uphill battle. Interest rates compounding, minimum monthly payments that just keep you in an endless cycle of debt. Uh, I've been there. And I've not known how to get ahead. I've not known how to get a handle on that. Well, Upstart can help you now get ahead. 
Upstart is the fast and easy way to pay off your debt with a personal loan and all online, whether it's paying off credit cards or consolidating high interest debt or funding personal expenses. Over half a million people have used Upstart to get a simple fixed monthly payment. And unlike other lenders, Upstart looks at more than just your credit score, like your income and employment history. This means they can offer smarter rates with trusted partners. With a five minute online rate check, you can see your rate upfront for loans between $1,000 to $50,000. And I'll definitely tell you, you know, taking a look at the uh, upstart.com website, upstart.com slash mission log, and going through those initial questions, it, it is one of the simplest, friendliest ways to wrap your mind around the sort of information that can be so daunting and complex. Uh, so that part of the process was an absolute pleasure. And you can receive funds as fast as one business day after accepting your loan. So find out how Upstart can lower your monthly payments today when you go to upstart.com slash mission log. That's upstart.com slash mission log. Don't forget to use our URL to let them know that we sent you. Loan amounts will be determined based on your credit, income, and certain other information provided in your loan application. So go to upstart.com slash mission log. Norman, I feel a little bit like I don't know exactly where to start with this episode, so I'm just going to dive right in, and I'll ask the unthinkable question. What if Worf had mm -hmm. completed his mission? I, I mean, yeah. that that's really the, the conundrum that this comes down to, and I love this setup because Worf is all about honor and duty, and there are so many other situations where we could see him almost ignoring the concerns of other people in order to finish whatever he has decided is the honorable part of his mission, the, the duty part of his mission. Uh, and what would have happened in this case? Would, would Dax have been okay? What if she hadn't been okay? What would the others think of Worf? What would that have done to him? There are so many interesting possibilities with this story. And, mm -hmm. you know, there is a way to write this where everybody wins in the end. Worf is able to do the job, get Lasarin, get back to Dax. Everybody's okay. They get him home. They, they have this valuable intelligence. There's another way to write this story where he completes the mission and Dax dies. And what does that do to him? You know, that that, that mm -hmm. could have been just an absolutely uh, uh, dark and tragic way to explore Worf's continued journey. And I left this out of the trivia on purpose because I figured I would get to it here, which is that, you know, we, we say we don't jump the timeline, meaning that we try not to talk about plot points that are coming up in the future, because that could be its own just long rabbit hole of discussion. It's unfair to each other doing the show. It's unfair to the audience to just keep spinning our wheels that way. But in this case, it's really important. Terry Farrell had already decided that this was going to be her final season on Deep Space Nine. She had suggested that this is the way to kill off Dax and mm -hmm. let Worf carry on his mission, go get Lasarin or not. Maybe he loses both in the end, but this is the way to kill off Dax where it actually serves an even more impactful moment on Worf. I get that, mm -hmm. but I wonder if it would be too tragic. So what do you think? I mean, that's a very good question. I asked myself that exact same question at the end of this episode. What if the the mission was a success? And I guess that it really all depends on, or at least when it, where it affects Worf, I think, really all depends on where in the in the hierarchy that those accolades or that support or lack thereof is coming from. Because, say, for example that Lasarin actually did have the kind of intelligence that Starfleet needed to to use against the founders in the Alpha Quadrant. That's what he's claiming. No one has actually ever really confirmed that. That's what the, this guy's claiming. 
right? It's not like he has a data disk or, or something that he would mail to somebody or say, you know, here's a crystal with all of my information on it. Get it, you know, send it somewhere in case I die. Yeah. He's just on, on faith alone, we are believing this mission's intel. So yeah. that's where I have a talking point later on. Yeah, no, that, that's a really good point. They get cornered into that mission. So mm -hmm. that, that's a really tough call. I also want to ask, are we at some point to think that Dax at this point being, you know, the combined memories of what, 700 years of uh, uh, symbiote and, uh, you know, other life form, trail life form joined, um, would be anything less than sincere in making that request. What what if Dax outranked Worf and said, no, this is an order. Go do this. Go complete the mission because the information, the, if we believe him, the information that Osiron has could save billions of lives. So I am ordering you to go do this while I stay here and potentially die. But is this like an all's well that ends well you know, maybe less so, oh, Worf doesn't get a command too soon. Okay, fine. Mm -hmm. He still has his wife. That that really is mm -hmm. the most important thing here. Are we to believe at any point that there's doubt in both of their minds as they're saying this? You go on the mission, leave me here. Okay, I'll go on the mission and leave you here. Clearly, Worf has just enough doubt to turn around and go back, fortunately. They both said to each other, we're both Starfleet officers. We both have duty. We, have, we both have a commitment that we've made. We have to complete this mission, or at least one of us does. I'm not sure if she's necessarily saying it just for Worf's benefit, but for her benefit as well, so that she focuses on... Uh, when, you, when you're focused on a mission, you're focused on the goals of the mission, and one of the goals of the mission is to get home and stay alive. Yeah. So perhaps that she's also telling Worf what he needs to hear because she needs to hear it also. It's a motivation that, that they'll both have to try and, and finish this mission and get home alive or do the best they can in doing it. But so the big if in all of this, the big if is that if Worf sacrificed Jadzia for the sake of completing the mission, then we wrap this in this entire kind of like Star Trek axiom, the Vulcan axiom of the needs of the many. Mm -hmm the innocent lives of the Alpha Quadrant that were saved from the war outweigh the needs of the few, or in this case, the one, Worf's needs. Yeah. So as Star Trek fans, are we trying to shoehorn that into this particular story? Does that apply here because we want it to apply? Or are we looking at it necessarily from, say, Worf's point of view, the way that Kirk sacrificed everything to go save the one yeah it, in that spot it, it makes it a lot more difficult when emotions are at play here because if this been a couple of vulcans on a mission it would have been very cut and dried vulcan a says to vulcan b leave me here to die it's the logical thing you have to complete this mission the needs of the many outweigh the needs of this few or the one yeah Right. And, and uh, look, I also have to ask myself, you know, I, I don't know if I necessarily believe that Starfleet even would be that black and white about what happened. First of all, the mission was not go rescue Lasarin. That, that was a complication that got added after the fact. Cisco says, you made the wrong choice. Uh, did he, though? Because isn't his first duty to an injured crew member rather than necessarily the mission at that point. The mission was, go to this place, go intercept this message. They had no idea what else was coming after that. And they had right. no way to communicate right. it back to Starfleet, back to anybody else. I, I think there is equally as good a case to say that you turn around and help the person who needs help first, make sure that your crew is secure first, then you carry on the mission. And it doubles down here because it's crew and Parmacon. Yeah. His wife. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. Now that that that, that purple that, Klingon you know, blood runs hot, you know. <laughs> so <laughs> Yeah. But but you know, I, we know that um that they're the, the contrivance of the story's sake to put both of 
our leading characters' eggs in the same basket, so to speak, so that the uh, the, the situation compounds upon itself when the, the drama needs it, you know, because it's not just Worf leaving Dax. It would have been much different if it was a Worf leaving Julian or Worf leaving Odo, but mm-hmm. it's Worf leaving his wife, and they're finally getting on the same page about a lot of things. Their marriage is really starting to to work itself out. They're they're and I think that we were set up. Our expectations were set up to be subverted by the way that Worf starts to behave at the end. And this is something that I found really interesting. Say in one little ship. As soon as something goes south, like Worf was very much, I'm going to write a poem for Jadzia. This is what she's expecting of me to regale her with poem and song. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking about that too much. And that's why the Jem'Hadar were able to take over our ship because of me, because of my mistake, because of my weakness and my lack of forethought. He did the exact same thing here at the end. You know, if it weren't for me, letting me enjoy my life, letting me actually feel something then I wouldn't have done all this stupid stuff like fall in love and talk about being in the mountains with my family and I would have known the Jem'Hadar were coming. And that's nonsense. And it's an interesting pattern that I've seen in Catholic guilt syndrome. I yeah. say that because I'm, I was Catholic yeah. and, and in, Catholic, in, in, in Catholicism, I don't, I don't mean to in, insult any of the Catholics out yeah. there, but this is just my personal experience. Mm-hmm. In Catholicism, there is this teaching that God is watching you always, the omnipresent God. And if you step out of line, he may not just punish you directly. He may punish a member of your family or something tragic might happen to somebody that you know or love. Yeah. And then you punish yourself for that or keep yourself in line from doing something that you would want to do in your life that gives you meaning because you know that sooner or later down the line, someone else is going to get punished for your selfishness. Right, right. And, and that is where, you know, that's where Worf's coming yeah, from. Yeah, it's a terrible way to live, and it is so Worf <laughs> that, that it, it could not be more explicitly Worf like that. Yeah. Well, I mean, the way I kind of see it is that, you know, as a child, this is how you are taught to to buy into certain belief systems. And maybe somewhere along the line, because Worf always struggled with being a child of two worlds, much like Spock did. Worf always wanted to embrace the warrior Klingon side of his heritage. And it's not a coincidence that Dax kept saying, you know, I don't want to do the pain and suffering type of fun that you like. Because that's what Worf puts himself through in order to maintain and stay the course of being Klingon. Pain and suffering. Pain and suffering and torture, torture, suffering and pain, all for the sake of honor. Yeah. And that prevents him from being truly happy because once he's truly happy, then something bad happens. Right. So you're not allowed to be happy, Worf, because something bad happens. So it's back to pain, tragedy and suffering. Wow. That's that. That's rough on Worf. And by the way, I, I do want to say also that uh, yeah, I mean that that just explains so much about Worf's psychology right there. It's also interesting to me this episode is sort of back to something that we've talked about in Star Trek before, which is the ultimate expression of the trolley problem. You know, I, I do one action and I potentially save all these other people uh, by my inaction. I might be risking one person. But that one person is much more important to me than all these other people that I might save. Uh, so I appreciate the the stakes, how they're playing out here, um, and the the personal focus that they've been given. I think you made a really good point, Norman. That you know, whether through just sort of the the reality of production and uh, this being a character thread that they had accidentally let drop during all these big grand dramatic stories about war uh so we feel a little like we've been short shrifted on the dax wharf relationship that could have been purely just by production reality purely by accident or it could have been by apathy just like eh, we yeah, look put them together we'll get them married we'll figure out what to do later <laughs> you know it could have been that but this does seem to actually make up for a lot of those missteps uh, by giving them the opportunity to finally get on the same page, which is weird because they had such a short courtship. It's like now that they're married, now they figure out how to be a couple 
as opposed to the other way around, which you would think would make a lot more sense. I do want to move along and talk about one other aspect of the show here. I, I think we need to talk about the B plot a little bit. I mean, it, it is firmly a B plot, but it definitely has some value, ha- has some merit here. Um, I love this idea that we're not necessarily taking him down a notch, but we're finding Bashir's weakness and we're using it to humanize him. Because we've been through such a journey with Bashir. First couple of seasons, like, wow, who is this just like, brash, obnoxious, kind of sexist, who's this guy, you know, to then finding a much better emotional balance with him. And by slipping in this, you know, detail about him being genetically engineered, it helps to explain and answer a lot of other questions about him. And I love that this weakness that we found, it's not solely about Dax. So that was the perfect way to express it in that Tongo game. Absolutely, he had a thing for her. Absolutely, he still does. But in a professional sense, he got past it. They work together like adults. They're fine. But I'm intrigued at this idea of Cork finding that emotional kind of sore point for Bashir and then using it to his advantage because it's about Bashir's self-doubt and about his loneliness, and about his perception of himself. All of that is what's wrapped up in what's going on. Yet, Yes, he has a thing for Dax. Yes, he did have a thing for Dax. But I think the way this played out, it speaks to so much about what's going on in Bashir's brain, that now instead of just being what we've experienced the last several episodes oh he's genetically superior he's the miracle doctor he can do all these things oh but he actually has real human emotions and also what i like about where quark is in this space is that no matter what no matter how close your friendships are getting no matter how how uh, smooth all of the relationships seem to be flowing one thing is for certain is that never go up against a Ferengi when Latinum is on the line? That's a lesson learned. Yes, it was. Thinking back to the time Worf found the Romulan Klingon exiles in a jungle, let's face it, nothing good happens to Worf in a jungle. So I guess, I mean, I don't know, John, I guess we made it, whatever. I mean, you're here, I'm here, I guess we're good. So, okay, that's fine. I'm fine. You're fine. Fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. We're all fine here. Now, thank you. How are you? (laughs) (laughs) So we're at the end here of Change of Heart. I had a change of heart about uh, my attitude since the beginning, John. I'm, you know, I'm in a much better space now, thanks to shedding my Catholic guilt and being cathartic throughout the course of our conversation. But um, in all seriousness... Uh, how did you feel about this episode, and uh, how did it hold up for you? I, I have mixed feelings about it. So I, I I think I liked it more on the rewatch uh, the more times I went through it. Because my initial reaction is this isn't a mind-blowing episode of DS9. You know, There aren't huge dramatic arcs. There aren't shocking moments of character growth. Um, and I'd say that most of the plot points are pretty much by rote. You know, it's hard that you're going to find a plot as original and character moments as dramatic as, you know, again, what we got in Far Beyond the Stars and and plenty of other episodes you could point out uh, that, that would be that high on the list. However, I think what they do here, they do really well, because in the end, this is an episode where we're humanizing the characters by adding a little more complexity, a little more realism to their lives. Uh, Honestly, it's stuff that I wish we would have gotten a little earlier in the series. Worf gets that moment through almost losing Dax. Mashir gets it by having his emotions messed with by Quark. And even Sisko gets a little bit at the end by doing his duty enough to admonish Worf for his behavior, 
but then completely being honest about putting himself in the same position. I, I would have hated that scene if we didn't get that line out of Cisco about Jennifer. Um, it's a solid episode. It's not groundbreaking. Um, there's payoff here for those of us who have seen a lot of these characters on screen grow over time. But to me, this is not make or break DS9. Now, given this, finally, 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 some of the best writing for Worf. I, I mean, truly, we we have taken finally. yes, we have taken him to task over and over again on this show. Uh, certainly, you know, back in the day, talking about Worf on uh, TNG, but this time they showed growth, they showed depth, and I just really hope it sticks. Can we please have that? Because of all the lessons that Worf has supposedly learned over time, they seem to just get completely forgotten a few episodes later. And here we had something actually happen for him where it felt like, oh, uh, oh, okay, he's actually learning to live with Dax instead of what we had on their their marriage and you were cordially invited, where it was just this old school farce with him completely <laughs> throwing Dax under the bus. So I hope that this is the change that we need out of him. Um, but, you know, look, again, as I said, as a piece of plot-driven episode, eh, not, not, not the greatest, not super strong. But as far as strong writing for Worf, it is right up there. So mm. I, I think it's solid. I don't think this is the best. How about you, Norman? Well, I'll, I think I'm going to surprise you and, and maybe some of the fans out there because I, I did some research on this and it's not really up there in the, the highest rated episodes. But for me, this is actually one of my favorite episodes of this season. Wow. Because when I, when I step back and, and look at it, I agree with a lot of what you said here, John. And I do agree that there aren't these huge, sweeping, dramatic kind of May sweeps or season ending moments. But the way it sat for me throughout the course of this was that it was really just a pleasure to watch Michael Dorn and Terry, Fel especially, especially Michael Dorn mm -hmm. because they gave him so much to work with. But I like it when the, the human moral question is really presented in, in, in such a very unvarnished kind of way. It's what would you have done in Worf's situation. Yeah. Right. Put I mean, yourself that, in Worf's situation. Yeah. And if it's someone that you cared for, that we all project ourselves in our fandoms from time to time. And I think that in this situation, it is, especially if you're in a relationship, it's easy for uh, people to project themselves into, would I have done that? It's easy to sit uh, sit back like an armchair quarterback, like I would, you know, I would have done what duty required. Mm -hmm. Would you have though? You know? Yeah. And that's where I really think that this episode shines for me. But I also think it's because it's Worf's probably finest moment or moments in this season, at least, if mm -hmm. not in his entire arc since Sins of the Father. <laughs> I think it's one of Michael Dorn's best performances at Worf because we finally got to see dimension in Worf's personality. We saw him struggle with very true emotions, with extreme uh, application of the words that he always filters his life by, duty, honor, and loyalty. And it's either one or a combination of the others or none of the uh, above or anything in between that usually, uh, they, they usually inform his decision-making. But now we're seeing a lot of balance in what's going on with Worf. He's... He started to settle, and he started to become a fully and integrated, emotionally balanced person, character. But also, Terry Farrell is incredible in this episode. And yeah. I think that she and Michael are at this point in their career on Deep Space Nine where they are perfect counterpoint to each other. They know how to act against each other. They know how to pull what needs to be pulled out of each other's performances in order to make this relationship real and three-dimensional. And, uh, you know, she's, or Dax, I should say, is, is sarcastic and strong. And Worf is very stodgy and very 
stale. And now they're starting to switch some of those particular behaviors and starting to blend them and turning into this really wonderful balanced couple. So take a look at them from He Who Is Without Sin. And then take a look at them from You Are Cordially Invited. Not the greatest representations of the relationship. And then (laughs) take them now. But I'm going to save some of what my explanations for that in morals, meanings, and messages. Yeah, I mean, look, I I, I agree with a, a lot of what you said there, certainly. And um, I, I also want to give the, well, writers, but particularly here, uh, Ron War, I want to give them credit for not giving this the neatly tied up TV happy ending that, probably any other show with a less talented writing staff would have done, which is that everybody would have been saved in the end. Everybody go ho- goes home in the end. The mission is completed. The wife is saved. We're okay. Um, I mean, let's be honest, John. That's the next generation ending. Not to disparage the next generation, but that was more of their yeah. style. Yeah. Yeah, it, it was. It, it was. There are a few exceptions where they don't, but but certainly that was more of their style. This is a case where the stakes felt real and the decision felt real and somewhere along the road here they were there would be some actual consequence to what happens um so i'm i'm really glad to see them make that choice uh and that's why i wanted to kick off the last segment saying like what are the what ifs (laughs) you know is this the right decision is it the wrong decision is there another decision that could be made but the way this show plays out it feels like almost no matter what, there will be somebody who loses their life in the end, and potentially many more. You know, so um, I, I like what they did here, and that brings us to morals, meanings, messages. Um, you asked a question a moment ago to our audience and to me, presumably as part of that, um, about what would you do, and to me. That's a really easy answer because I feel like it is one of the the morals, meanings, messages that I picked up from this show, which is about love being stronger than duty. And that's why I wanted to pose that question in the last segment as well, which is, is Cisco actually right by saying you made the wrong choice? He understands that there is the personal bond. He understands that that is probably your first duty, which would overtake your professional duty. He gets that on a personal level. And again, I also want to question, isn't part of that job to protect the people who are wounded in your mission, uh, who are under your care? You know, that that is part of being good at your duty. So... It's a strong current here, a love being stronger than that, you know, quote unquote, professional duty in this case. And I respect that. I think it is the right decision to make. And I would do the same thing in a heartbeat. And I'm glad that Cisco would, too. Glad that he admits that. And on a lighter note, if we look at the B plot, um, I, I can't say the actual phrase here, but you've all heard it before and you know what it's from. Never BS a BSer. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's the situation that Bashir finds himself in, and he is outmatched by Quark, and it is just a fun thing to watch. Like it's serious and it's personal, mm-hmm. but it's a fun thing to watch. Uh, so I, I like his hubris going into it, and his genetic engineering has not let him down up until this point. But in addition to that genetic engineering. He is still a person with an emotional life and with maybe some regrets and some what ifs. And we all live with that and we can all identify with that. And Quark knows it. And I love how Quark says that he's not going to show his whole hand because whether or not he's got a thing for Dax and he's hinted at it before, less than hinted at it. But in this case, it doesn't matter. It was the advantage he needed. I love watching that play out. Bring us home, Norman. What else we got? I have, I, I, for, from time to time, I like pulling musical quotes out. And there's a quote, or I should say a lyric from Queen in a song they sing in Highlander. And it says, just one year of love is better than a lifetime alone. And I found that very apropos for this episode. So I'm going to open up my final thoughts with a question. What is the price of duty? And can you place value on honor? 
This is Worf's Kobayashi Maru moment. There is no right or wrong answer. What he chose to do to save Dax and sacrifice the mission was a test of his character and how he must now live with the consequences of his actions. In the final analysis, the information that the Cardassian Lasseran could have been vital, could have been vital. It was never acknowledged that it was true. And the information could have affected the direction of the war. But that is what Worf had to decide. Was Dax's life worth all the coulds, might-haves, potentialies, if he chose to meet Lacerin at the rendezvous point and secure their escape? What if Worf arrived too late and Lacerin was already dead or captured? That means he would have left Dax to die or be captured and Interstate would have definitely died at the hands of the Jem'Hadar. What if the information turned out to be not as consequential to the war effort or if Starfleet intelligence uh, thought ha they had originally reported? What then? The outcome, if Worf chose to follow duty over conscience, would be the certain death of his wife for the possibility of information that might have saved lives or changed the course of the war. So how does one reconcile that decision? So I believe this is where Worf, in this episode of all episodes that I've seen him in since when he first came on, where I truly felt he was a fully rounded character and trying to find the correct balance between his sense of duty and honor, not just Starfleet and his career, but to his beating heart, like he said, to his Parmakai, and finally understanding that the needs of the one, and that one being Dax, outweighs the needs of the few or the many. So during Worf's debriefing by Cisco, Worf says, I had to go back and it did not matter what Starfleet thought or what the consequences were. She was my wife and I could not leave her. That is about as different of Worf as I have ever heard. But this is the line that I truly believe is where Worf just transformed in front of my eyes as a character who finally achieved his greatest moment of character growth. And that's him at Dax's bedside when he said, you come first, before career, before duty, before anything. I do not regret what I did, and I will do it again. And there will always be opportunities for Worf to salvage his career. There's only one chance for a life with Dax. And that right there is Worf truly demonstrating what duty, honor, and loyalty really means. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. Executive producer, Rod Roddenberry. Our website, your opportunity to comment and connect with us, is missionlogpodcast.com. If you'd like to support Mission Log directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash missionlog. And for more Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit trekmovie.com. On the next Mission Log, wrongs darker than death or night. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11. Online at warp11.com. Special thanks to consulting producers Adam Brusky, Homer Frizzell, and Mike Schabel. Now I'm thinking back to Arsenal of Freedom, so let me revise what I said earlier. Nothing good happens to Star Trek characters in a jungle. transmission. This is a Roddenberry podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.roddenberry.com.